0: Hello, and welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network, a podcast which discusses the most recently published books with their authors. My name is Matthew Long, and I will be your host today as we speak with Professor Najam Haider on his book The Origins of the Shia. When did groups in Kufa begin forming unique identities leading to the development of imami-Shiism and zaidi-Shiism? Professor Najam Haider, a professor of religion at Barnard College of Columbia University, answers this question in his book, The Origins of the Shia, Identity, Ritual, and Sacred Space in 8th Century Kufa. This study is a boon for those with research interest in early Shiism, Kufa, or the history of Islam prior to the 9th century. In the first section of his book, Hayter announces his intention to test literary narratives of the origins of Shiism, Namely, if Imami Shiism did in fact develop during the early 2nd or 8th century, and if Zayidi was the product of the merging of two distinct Shia groups. To answer those questions, he proposes to analyze 8th century Kufan traditions from Sunni, Imami, and Zaidi sources. He examines the traditions on the basis of their legal authorities, the composition of their Isnads, and their narrative styles, a method known among scholars of Islam as Matin Kum Isnad. He applies this methodology to three case studies in the second section of his book. The first case study being that of the basmala in ritual prayer, prayer, the use of kunut, a blessing or curse in prayer, and finally, the prohibition of intoxicants. Each case study centers on ritual, which Hayter argues is a more determinative means of ascribing identity than an individual or group's theology. Based on the results of these three case studies, Hayter proposes a revised history of Zaydi-Shiism in the third section, a history in which Zayidism was a movement with strong Batri influence in its nascent stages, but later became Jarudi. Hayter's work stands out for the clarity of the questions he seeks to answer and the method he employs in doing so. Every chapter concludes with a concise summary of the major points, and the entire work is filled with charts of data to help readers understand how the massive corpus of information he utilized was organized and categorized. Scholars will obviously benefit from its proposed revised history, but its readability makes it useful to undergrads and laypersons alike. Hello and welcome to the Islamic Studies section of the New Books Network. Today we are speaking with author Najam Haider on his book The Origins of the Shia. Hello Najam. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Well, I've had the time to be able to read through Najam's book, and it's quite, you know, it's done quite well. It's a very good read, very clear and concise in all of its topics, and it really addresses a very interesting issue regarding the origins of the Shia, you know, in the uh, in the 8th century in Kufa. But before we really start talking about his book, let's, you know, kind of get an idea of who you are, Najam. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background?
1: Sure. Um, I... Was Well, I'm from the East Coast. I was raised in New Jersey, and initially, I was, I was hoping to go into science. So at Dartmouth, I went to Dartmouth as an undergrad, and I majored in physics, and I also wanted to, uh, to do something more, I guess, political, and so I had a double major in physics and a government. And initially, I thought that I would just go to the Middle East, learn some Arabic, and then go on to graduate school, but I took some time off. And when I came back, I realized what I was really interested in was early Islam, um, and so I went to Oxford, got my master's in classical uh, Arabic historiography, um, and then I went to Princeton, and at Princeton, I got my phD in the Near Eastern Studies Department um, under Michael Cook and Hussein Masi
0: And so in terms of the research, how did you know you begin researching this specific topic?
1: well um, my real interest ended up being um, in early Islam. And the problem with early Islam is that we have so few sources. So I really spent my entire master's um, education and most of my PhD trying to figure out how to go about doing a history of early Islam. Now the problem is that we have almost nothing from the first century and very few sources from the second century. Um, so we're talking about the 7th and the 8th century. So part of what I wanted to do and part of what my intention was at Princeton was to develop some sort of method to to try to uncover um, historical information from that sort of black box period, the first and second Muslim centuries. Um, And so eventually I stumbled onto uh, Hadith, which are statements of the Prophet um, or akhbar, as they're called, statements of other early legal authorities. And then I tried to figure out some topic that, or some area where I might be able to use the method that I developed to try to uh, to figure out what was actually going on. Or at the very least to evaluate sort of uh, what we have, which are literary narratives from a later period. So really the whole purpose of the project was to develop a method to to evaluate the reliability of what we think we know about the first two centuries.
0: And really, you could... T- Explain this method quite clearly in your second chapter, but really before even doing that, you kind of, you know, elaborate on the specific question in this book that you're exploring. Mm-hmm. Well, I should say really two things that you're exploring.
1: Well, what I was interested in was early Shi'ism. And essentially what we have, what what, what we think we have um, when, we, when we speak of early Shi'ism are these literary narratives. And these literary narratives tend to come from heresiographies. Now, heresiographies are works that elaborate... Um on the different sects that emerged um in the first couple of centuries. And they're very um they they present a very schematic version of of early Islam. Now, the two narratives that I was particularly interested in were the narratives of early Twelver Shiism, or what I referred to as Imami Shiism, and early Zaydi Shiism. Now, what we think we know about these two um religious traditions um it is essentially that they emerged in the early 2nd, 8th century. Um, and we have a, a, a very set narrative about the individuals who were important in this emergence and how these communities came to identify themselves as particularly Shia. Now, my question was um, whether these narratives hold up under um, deeper scrutiny. So what I tried to do was um, use material that already exists, that we can date to the same time where these communities are supposed to have emerged, um, and, and see whether there was some way to, to evaluate how, how accurate these narratives actually were. So the material that I chose to focus on was legal material. And the reason I chose to focus on legal material was that, first of all, we have a fairly good um, method of dating that legal material. A lot of Germans have done scholarship that, that has tried to show that hadith that, that, that deal with legal issues – Um, tend to come from the early 2nd 8th century. Um, So I try to use these legal materials to try to evaluate these narratives. Now the problem with the legal material is it doesn't tell you, well, Twelver Shiism emerged here, or Zaydi Shiism emerged here. What the legal material tells you is, how do you pray? Or what should you wear? Or what should you eat? So they're all legal issues. But the real issue here was to take the legal material and try to use it to figure out when these communities began to emerge and whether our, our assumptions about the emergence of these communities actually holds up.
0: And so, with that, you kind of uh, then go into some detail about the actual methodology that you employ. Um, I mean, you are looking at, at this, but you're looking at it through a certain lens, and can you kind of explain that lens that you're using?
1: Well. Harold Motzki and some other uh, German scholars of, of recent years have, have looked at Hadith as a whole, um, and they've structurally analyzed them on the basis of their chains of transmission. So as I'm sure you know, um, all of these traditions that we have, all of these texts that we have that deal with um, legal issues, they come with an attached chain of transmission. So you know, A heard from B who heard from C, and they generally go back to the Prophet or some other early authority. But what the German scholars have done is um, structurally examine large groups of traditions. And on the basis of structure, on the basis of, of, of what they look like as a, as a larger corpus, they've they found a way to date these traditions to the um, late first or early second century. Now, I've built off of this. Um, I take that dating um, almost at face value because I think that the work is, is strong. And then what I what I do is I take a bunch of traditions that deal with one legal issue, and then I go back to those, I date, I'm I, sorry, I limit, or I, what's the word, I locate those traditions um, in a particular geographical region. Um, and so I can take 100 or 200 or 300 traditions that deal with, for example, how, how one prays. And on the basis of their chains of transmission, I can date them to a particular city in the early second eighth century, and the city that I'm particularly interested in is Kufa, um, which is one of the real centers of the Muslim world in the early second eighth century. So I take all of these traditions that are located in Kufa, and then I begin to examine the the individuals they cite as authorities, the structure, the literary structure that is that is um, sort of that is utilized in these sources themselves. And on the basis of those, of of two or three common factors, I try to determine um, whether or when communities begin to diverge. So let me give you an example. If we take um, Sunni traditions and we and we look at Sunni traditions and we compare them with Twelver traditions, what I'm primarily interested in is when they structurally, the traditions themselves begin to look different. So when are Sunni sources using different authorities? When are they using different transmitters? And when are they using different literary styles? Because this divergence of traditions I see as indicative of a divergence of communal identity.
0: And so that kind of then explains uh, the reason why you explore such a large body of this material as well, because you're exploring not only just... Imami and Zaidi, but also the Sunni schools as well, correct?
1: I'm looking at all three and I'm trying to see when the corpuses associated with each of these communities begin to diverge. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to, to find moments or at least date moments where um, the three communities begin to, the traditions of these three communities begin to elicit their own really unique characteristics. So what I'm arguing is that when the traditions associated with each community begin to look very, very different, that is indicative of, the, of a community separating off. So when Twelver traditions begin to cite their own people, and when they're being transmitted by their own transmitters, and when they're offering or they're embodying a literary style that is
0: completely different,
1: I argue that that suggests that the community has begun to see itself differently, or as a separate body.
0: No, that makes sense. And so then you, uh, with this methodology in hand, you then actually turn to three particular case studies.
1: Yeah, I was interested in looking at at, at case studies that dealt with practice. Um, and the reason I did so is um, because of uh, Pierre Bourdieu, who is one of the theoretical influences on this work. And Bourdieu argued that um, identity begins to form around choices that groups of people make. And it has to be visible. It has to be noticeable. Um, so part of what he argued was that the French middle class, that's what his focus was. The French middle class in the 20th century began to separate itself off when it had, when it developed its own tastes, when it developed its own preferences. Um, and part of what he argued was that identity required an obvious difference. So the... the Bordeaux's ideas have been applied to lots of other communities. Um, I think the most prominent might be the punk movement um, in the 20th century. And the idea was that when you saw a punk in the streets, you knew that they were a punk because of where they were, because of how they looked, because of how they dressed, because of how they acted. So I took this idea that identity coalesces around differences, visible differences. And I asked myself whether I could find case studies that would demonstrate visible differences or that would be observable to broader society in the 8th century, so that people would be able to say, oh, look, that's a Shia. That's a Twelver Shia. That's a Zaydi Shia, based upon things that were easily observed. So the three case studies I chose were, were areas that um, were observable in their difference, so, which were obvious. Um, so you would know, you would be able to see the first of those was the basmallah, which is sort of this phrase that that is recited at the start of the of the ritual prayer um, in Islam. And this statement, with I mean, this idea seems or this phrase might not seem profound, but there were very deep-rooted differences as to whether the phrase should be included in the prayer, whether the phrase should be recited aloud or whether the phrase should be recited silently, and the Shia tended to always recite it out loud. So the first case I chose was a case in which modern Shi practice is different from all the other schools of law. So I wanted to choose a case study in which the Twelvers, in particular stand out. The second case I chose was this this element of the ritual prayer in which you raise your hands and you either pray or you curse an individual um, in the course of the ritual prayer. And in this case, the Twelvers don't necessarily stand out. Um, Other groups stand out as well. So now I wanted to get to a more fuzzier case study when it came to ritual law. And the final case study I chose was um, the permissibility of intoxicants or alcohol. And in this case, a Sunni group stands out as being separate. So here I chose a case study where the Twelvers and the Zaydis stand together with most Sunni schools but there's one Sunni group that stands out as different. So the point in choosing these three case studies was was to have sort of a diversity in relationships. So the first case study separates the Twelvers. the second case study is more muddy, and the third case study separates out one particular Sunni group. And my idea was that if we could find the same patterns emerging in all three cases, um, then that would provide strong evidence for, for my conclusions because I wasn't just choosing... Three "quote unquote" sectarian issues. I was quote, I was choosing three issues that transcended sectarian differences.
0: And uh, you explained very well about why you selected them because of the uh, really it's the practice that becomes the determinant. Um, was there any other reason though that you also selected? I mean, besides what you said about you know the differences, but um, you know I'm sure that there could have been other. Practices that you could have selected from as well.
1: Oh, I mean there were a lot that I could have chosen the basmala the first one The the uttering of that phrase at the start of prayer um, I chose that because there's a lot of material available on it and the amount of traditions that deal with it are limited in number So it's an issue that is widely known, but which has a a manageable amount of material so I was able to do a, a, a fairly limited analysis um, the knut I chose because, which was the, the element of cursing or um, praying in the middle of the ritual prayer, I chose that because I just was interested in it and I didn't know much about it. And the alcohol one I chose because, hey, I want to get a job. And an issue like alcohol is, it has buzz. So I figured that why not? I'll choose something that, that was a little more uh, sparkly. So those are why
0: I chose those three issues. And not to digress, but you did end up producing something further on that last section as well.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I recently published an article on on alcohol um, or the permissibility of alcohol. Um, I mean, and that's a particular. I mean, I can talk about that at some other point, but um, Mm -hmm. the alcohol issue is a fairly interesting issue because um, counterintuitively, at least one of these groups, the Hanafi law school, allowed or permitted. The consumption of alcoholic beverages for almost five or six hundred years, uh, even though the prohibition of alcohol is one of the characteristics that we most associate
0: with Islam. Well, I would definitely suggest that our listeners check that out as well. But um, to get back to your, uh, to get back to what our focal point is. So after the case studies, though, um, returning to what your the two narratives that you wanted to, you know. Examine what. What did the case studies ultimately tell you?
1: Well, the case studies. well, I, I should take a step back here.
0: Okay.
1: I, and I should explain what the two narratives are in a little more detail.
0: So okay. before I
1: get to the results. Sure. Now, most modern scholars um, believe that Twelver Shiism emerged in the early second eighth century, around the time of the sixth Imam of the Twelvers, that being Ja'far Um, so this is a, a narrative that's put forth a lot. Now, I'm not saying that the Twelvers emerged as a, as a completely independent group in the 2nd, 8th century, but most scholars have suggested that they began to see themselves as being an, in, an independent group in the 2nd, 8th century. So that's narrative one that I was looking at. Does the, does the data that we have support this idea that the 12ers were, um, had separated themselves off from the broader community by the early 2nd, 8th century? The second narrative I was I was examining was a narrative that deals with Zaydi Shiism. Now, according to um, most works on Zaydi Shiism prior to to my book, um, Zaydis, the Zaydis emerged when with the coming together of two groups of Shia um, in the early second eighth century. One of those groups were known as the Buthris, and the other group was known as the Jarudis. Now, the Buthris resembled. Um, what we today think of as Sunnis, whereas the Jarudis resembled what we think of today as Shi'i. So we have two very disparate groups. The Batris are probably the most Sunni-Shi'i group you could find, and the Jarudis are stock Shia. Um, so the idea is that these two groups came together around the revolt of Zayd ibn Ali in the year 122-740. And over the course of the next hundred years, they sort of fought it out amongst themselves, and by the early ninth century, the Jarudis had come to dominate Zaydism, and the Buthris had sort of um, fallen off. So here we have this notion that, that Zaydism emerged from the combining of two groups at a time of rebellion and became more and more Shi' as time went on because one of the two groups that created it um, won out in an internal civil war. So these are our two narratives. One's a narrative about Twelver Shi'ism which just plainly states that they came about in the 2nd, 8th century. And one is a, group, is a narrative about Zaydism, which argues that Zaydism emerged from the combining of these two groups. So I wanted to evaluate whether these two narratives held up um, in, in the course of my three case studies. And what I found was that the Twelver Shia always seemed to be different, at least beginning in the 2nd, 8th century. So The narrative that emerges about Twelver Shiism seems to find support in the case studies. So in the 2nd, 8th century, we find that, 12 Shia, that the Twelver Shia were relying on their own authority figures transmitted through individuals who were not contested at all, so their own transmitters, um, and that they were presenting this information in very idiosyncratic and different ways. So the Twelver Shia seemed to be on their own. Now, when it came to the Zadis, what I found was that the traditional narrative doesn't seem to hold up. Because if we look at the early 2nd, 8th century, almost all the material that we have tends to be three in nature. So it, it is all part of this one group. This one group seems to be supplying all of it. But as time goes on, it begins to change. And within 100 years, it's all jarudi. It's all part of a second group. So instead of finding that these two groups are fighting it out, what seems to emerge from the, from the analysis is that in the beginning, the Zaydis tend to all be one thing, and later the Zaydis tend to be, all be another thing. So instead of a civil war between two groups, it seems, like, it seems that the Zaydis are evolving. They're going from one doctrinal position to a different doctrinal position, which doesn't suggest a civil war. It suggests an evolution.
0: And uh, just for our listeners, uh, maybe you could paint an example from one of the case studies of how how this looks.
1: Well, I mean, I (laughs) I don't have the the names right at Well, yes, of course. But what I mean is that if we take the basmala, for example, um, if you look at Zaydi traditions that deal with the basmala, the first case study, the case study about that phrase you recite at the start of prayer, well, if you look at any of the traditions... um, that can be dated to the early second eighth century. The authority figures that they're citing, so the people that they're using to say to to, prov- to provide an opinion, those figures fall within what we today think of as Sunnism. So they are Sunni figures. They're figures that are that that anyone who knows about Sunni jurisprudence would recognize. These are people. Um, these are people like Ibrahim al-Nahai who was a figure that later became associated with Sunnis. So the authority figures they're citing later become associated with Sunnis. And the transmitters that they're using, the people who are preserving these opinions, the opinion of Ibrahim, for example, um, these are transmitters that are found in Sunni sources. So they, are, they occur in Sunni collections. And the, the way in which they're presenting the information, so eyewitness accounts or um, quotations or long lists, these are all ways of presenting information that are also typical of Sunni sources. So in the early period, in the second, eighth century, the Zaydis are almost indistinguishable in the material that they're forwarding from Sunnis, or from the groups that become Sunnis. Now, if you go 50 years later, what you find is that the authorities that they are citing are sometimes obscure descendants of the Prophet, who aren't found in Sunni collections. And the authorities that are preserving their opinions are also descendants of the Prophet that are rarely found in Sunni collections. And the way in which they're presenting their material is is slightly different. It's slightly idiosyncratic. So what seems to be happening in the course of the second, eighth century is that the Zaydis are going from a position where they are largely, where they largely resemble the Sunni tradition to one where in which they are very unique. So what you see is sort of the identity emerging over the course of that century.
0: Very interesting. And so then, with with the results of your case studies, then the uh, you know the impact then that has upon the narratives is then what you kind of start to elaborate upon in your the final section of your book.
1: Well, the way I think about it is that the uh, the first section, the section with the legal case studies, is about when. It's about when did identities emerge. And so I'm testing our ideas about when. The last part of the book deals with how. Um, and here I begin to think about, you know, how did these identities emerge? Um, what did they look like? Um, what were the mechanisms involved in the emergence of these identities? So to start out with the, with the Zadies, because we're sort of on that topic... Uh, my my argument is that um, early on the Zaydis um, resembled Sunnis. But as time went on, as the century rolled on, the second, eighth century, um, the Zaydis were continually involved in more and more rebellions. So the Zaydis were supporting the rebellions of Alids, descendants of Ali, who were trying to overthrow either the, well, initially the Umayyads, but very quickly the Abbasids. And part of my argument is that, um, part of my argument is that as the century rolled on and these rebellions failed over and over and over again, the Zaydis began to, to, to feel oppositional. They began to become more and more um, radicalized, for lack of a better word. And so as the century moved on and as rebellions continued to fail every 10 or 15 years, they began to increasingly see themselves as, as different. They began to increasingly differentiate themselves from the broader community that ended up becoming Sunni. And in this process, part of what I argue is that Yahya ibn Abdullah, this one alid, uh, was particularly important because um, he was raised um, by the sixth imam, Jafar Sadiq. And so his opinions, his theology, his law, a lot of what he put forward, a lot of what he practiced, Um, resembled Twelver Shi'ism. And so when he took charge of the Zaydi community in the middle of the 8th century, and by the end of the 8th century, he began to facilitate a change within Zaydism. So part of what I'm arguing is that that evolution that occurred within Zaydism occurred under the auspices of this one leader who happened to be in charge of the community, but who happened to be quite different and who fostered in a a real change and the real emergence of a distinctive Zaydi identity. And when it comes to the Twelvers, I don't have to make much of an argument because part of what I've shown by by this point is that Twelver identity was already – had already materialized by the 2nd, 8th century. So I've already validated
0: that narrative. Sure. And then um, you know, kind of as you uh, move forward though, you also discuss other things in that last portion. Um, For instance, we had touched on earlier um, about – you know, the markers of identity and how practice becomes one of those markers. And I think you kind of really elaborate upon that as well in this section.
1: Well, yeah, in the third section, probably the funnest funnest part of writing this book um, were those last couple of chapters where I began to think about what were the mechanisms that made you different. So here I began to think about um, the process by which an identity emerges and again, drawing on Bourdieu, part of the argument here is that um, how, what made you a Shia early on was um, how you practiced your faith, so ritual, and where you practiced your faith, which were mosques. So what I began to do in those final two chapters is think about what it was that mattered um, early on. And in this regard, you can find um, lots of material especially both amongst Sunnis and Shia sources where um, people follow people around. I mean, it's like snooping. So let's say somebody comes to your town, somebody shows up in, in Baghdad or somebody shows up in Kufa and you want to know who they are and you want to know whether you can trust them. Well, we have lots of material where people will follow each other into mosques and observe each other praying. And on the basis of that observation, make a judgment. Is he one of us or is he not one of us? so what seems to be happening here is that your prayer became shorthand your ritual became shorthand for your identity and so in the in the earliest stages it was about how you pray in the earliest stages it was about um observable differences in the rich in ritual but as time went on that wasn't deemed as sufficient and that became um conflated with where you prayed so again If we look at Gufa in the early 8th century, this was a city that was divided into tribal sectors. And sometimes different clans would identify as Shia or identify as not Shia. Um, But mosques themselves were primarily tribal, they weren't sectarian. So what begins to happen in the course of the second 8th century and accelerates afterwards is that mosques become associated with um, particular communities. So if you were a Shia, you could visit a mosque, you could visit Kufa and go to a mosque, and the mosque would be known as being Shia or not Shia by the end of the 8th century, Um, and people within that mosque would pray in a very particular way. So we see this gradual shift from the importance of ritual to the importance of ritual together with space. So as time goes on, um, those two things become conflated. And then if we go even 100 years after that, if we, if we actually launch into the third and ninth century, we find that the visiting of a mosque itself becomes a ritual. And here, pilgrimage emerges. So, pilgrimage becomes a, a, a sort of a nexus of those two ideas space and ritual. Because what is a pilgrimage other than a ritual to a location? So, what ends up happening by the late third and ninth century is that what made you a, a Shia? And in this case, I'm dealing mostly with Twelvers because that's, what, that's most of the material that we have. What made you a Shia is your particip- participation in pilgrimages to shrines and to mosques. So really what I'm doing in that last section is, is sort of tracing how identity emerges and arguing that it emerges through ritual, through space, and then through a combination of ritual and space in the, in, in the act of pilgrimage. Um, and so all three of those things, if you think about them, Align with Bourdieu's idea. Um, And that's an idea that says that when you go somewhere, when you see someone, just on the basis of where they are and what they're doing, you can begin to think of them as A or B or C. You begin to, to have identity associated with visible markers.
0: It's very interesting. It's very reminiscent of, you know, when I think about, you know, just as in early Islam about, you know, just being simply identified as Muslim is really uh, there was a lot to do with, you know, practice and what you did versus, you know, the sort of theology that you held behind it.
1: Well, I mean, um, and that's part of what I'm part of what I was reacting against, I guess, in the book was this notion that, I mean, I'm not saying that theology isn't important, but I am saying that it's hard to know what someone's theological position is. So if you're walking around the streets of Gufa in the eighth century it's hard to know what someone feels, uh, what someone believes about about the nature of God or the attributes of God, or even about who they they choose as their imam. But it's very easy to say, "Oh, look what he's drinking; he must be part of that group," or "or or, or look look how he prays; he says that out loud, so he must be part of that group." So theology is important. I'm not saying it's not, but it's not useful necessarily for. For identity formation, it's not useful for for differentiating between one group and another because it's too difficult to discern immediately.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I was going to say um, we've pretty much gone through uh, your entire work. Um, is there anything that we have not touched upon that you think we should, you know, revisit or something else that was, you know, you'd like to discuss?
1: Well, I mean, I just want to emphasize that, um, and this is going to sound counterintuitive. But I really think that the contribution of the book isn't so much in the conclusions that it reaches. Although I do, I have to say, and I'm biased, I have to say that I really like the, the last section, especially the the analysis of identity formation. But the purpose of this book was was quite different. It was about method. And I think what I, what I feel the contribution of the book is, is methodological. Um, in the sense that, we have, um, we have to find ways of doing social history in, in early Islam, and we can't just take later sources as, as being true or accurate. And so the challenge that early Islamic historians face is finding alternate ways of figuring things out, of finding information, of discerning information. And that requires being a little bit creative in the methodology, that, the methods that we develop. So, really, what I, what I was most interested in, in writing this book, and in my dissertation, which is where much of this comes from, especially the first two sections, was finding a way to do early Islamic history. And I think one of the things that I'm most proud of in the book is that um, I'm not taking literary narratives that are 100 or 200 years later, um, that can be dated from 100 or 200 years later for granted. What I'm doing is I'm evaluating them on the basis of contemporaneous source material. And that requires a lot of hard work. It requires, you know, a lot of stats. It requires a lot of analysis that is is quite thick. And the book is thick, um, but I think that it it does give a it, it does it it works out in the end. It, it, it's worth it at the very end because you get a sense of um, you get a sense that the narratives that, that you've 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 come to the information that you've um, arrived at is based on something that is more solid than just an account from 200 years after the fact.
0: And the methodology is definitely very interesting and the work that you put into it. I mean, while the book is thick, I don't think, you know, for our listeners really demonstrates the amount of material that you actually have to explore to be able to get, you know, just what comes out in the book. I mean, the reader gets to see, you know, nice little charts of everything plotted out, but you know, it, I, I've been having visited the website because you have a, a reference to your website where all the material is compiled. I mean, you had to go through quite an abundant amount of material to actually get these nice, neat charts, and so it is a pretty, you know, rigorous, you know, scientific in that regards of, you know, really a thorough inspection of what's well, going
1: have, on. Well, I have to say that I think my physics background, and I did mention it in the beginning, actually has an impact on the way I do my work because I, I, I think I tend to. Um, I think I tend to tackle these problems from uh, a more scientific, uh, I guess position. My physics background makes me want to have data. and so I, I go after it and sometimes I can get a little uh, a little too deep in it, but I do think that overall it remains um, accessible. So
0: No, most definitely it's accessible and you know obviously the deeper just makes it that much more, you know, it makes it that so much better, I think. So it was a real, it was a real treat to be able to go through this because, you know, with the volume of material, the arguments come through, you know, very cleanly and concisely and very easy to understand, very easy to read and just an overall, you know, wonderful contribution to the field, I think. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, You know, we've taken a lot of your time to discuss your book. Um, I wondered if you might be able to maybe talk about, um, You know, if you have any future projects coming up here,
1: Uh, well, actually, um, just in a couple of months, um, I'm publishing an introduction to Shiism, which is meant for sort of undergraduate audiences. Um, And so that should be coming out from Cambridge in August. And I'm actually excited about that project um, as well because it doesn't just focus on Twelver Shias, uh, Twelver Shiism, which most introductory works do, but it also covers Ismailis and Zaydis. And it takes it, and, it, and it takes all three communities into the modern period, um, and the work itself I think is kind of unique in its structure, because what I'm interested in or what I examine is theology prior to narrative. So what I'm interested in is how um, how communities remember their own past. So it's an instructory work that is predicated on the idea that. The historical memory of different communities is fundamentally shaped by their later theology. So I, I sort of reverse um, the strategy used in most introductory works. Most introductory works mm-hmm. will begin with history and then go to theology. I begin with theology and then I, then I deal with history. So I'm, in, I'm excited about that. Um, the other book I'm working on now is, uh, or the other scholarly book I'm working on now is, um, and I'm, by training I'm a historian, So what I'm interested in is early Islamic historical writing. So the the current project deals with early Shi'i historical writing and through a number of case studies um, dealing with events in early Islam, I try to deconstruct what writers of history were intending to do. So the word tarikh is usually used for history. And what I'm interested in is figuring out what that word really means to folks who were writing history. Because I don't think it means what we think it means. That's kind of vague. But I, I don't think they necessarily cared so much about veracity. I think they were doing lots of different things in lots of different ways. Now, I'm, I want to find out what what the project actually was, what the genre actually refers to.
0: Are, are you looking at a specific period?
1: Um, again, I'm going to probably go back to the 8th century, but I'm not oh. limiting myself to there. The 8th or the 9th century. I'm looking at rebellions in particular. I'm looking at very specific rebellions in the 8th century or figures who who wanted to rebel but were unable to do so.
0: Very interesting. We look forward to uh, seeing that in the future at some point. Thank you. Um, well, like I said, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, I wanted to thank you very much for coming on to uh, you know be part of the uh, Islamic Studies channel of the New Books Network so that we could discuss your work. Well, thanks for having
1: me. I, I enjoyed it.
0: And, Hopefully we'll talk to you in the near future about a next work. Sounds great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us as we spoke with author Najam Haider on his book, The Origins of the Shia, Identity, Ritual, and Sacred Space in 8th Century Kufa. Make sure to stay tuned to the Islamic Studies channel for upcoming interviews from authors of the most recent books in Islamic Studies. Also, be sure to check out our other channels on the New Books Network. Thank you very much for joining us.